Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesick from the Programs Department of the Pratt Library. Uh, the new-ish new uh, copy of Compass is back on the table there. Compass is our library newsletter, which comes out every two months and talks about the library programs, which there are a lot this fall. We have some very interesting speakers lined up, and tonight we are lucky to have one of them, uh, David Nassau, uh, who will talk about the patriarch, the remarkable life of Joseph Kennedy. The Ivy Bookshop has copies of the book uh, out in the hall for sale following the program. David Nassau is the author of Andrew Carnegie, which was the New York Times notable book of the year and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and The Chief, The Life of William Randolph Hearst, which won the Bancroft Prize for History. Dr. Nassau is the Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. Professor of History at the Graduate Center for the City University of New York. We are happy to have David Nassau with us tonight. Delighted to be here. Don't let me forget my bag, please. It's everyone's responsibility. Um, I am a historian who writes biographies. At one point I was invited to, there's a biography seminar in New York at NYU, and I was invited, I don't know, 10 years ago. They haven't invited me back. And they... And I began by saying, I, I don't think of myself as a, as a biographer. Um, I write history, and the format that I use is by focusing on a life, at least for my last couple of books. And what that means to me is that I have to write two books at, at once, or have two different perspectives from which I'm writing. Number one, I want to tell the story of a life. And I've been choosing or have had chosen for me some remarkable lives and remarkable people to write about. But I want to do more than that, much more than that. I want to tell the history of our, our times. I want to use that life to examine, to illuminate to exhibit something of our history, U.S. history, our history as a nation, as a people, as a society. When I wrote a book about Hearst, I was fascinated by, at the moment I wrote it, Ross Perot. You all remember Ross Perot? <laughs> was running for president. And all the brilliant pundits, as brilliant then as they are now, were predicting he was going to get 20, 25% of the vote because he was quirky, he was entertaining, he was a good speaker, and he had more money than God. Right? Uh, well, it didn't turn out that way. But I was fascinated enough by the questions that I wanted to write about money in politics, culture in politics, the media in politics. So I wrote a biography of William Randolph Hearst. When I had finished that, I had had so much fun writing a biography that I was looking for another subject. 
And this time, I'm embarrassed to say, a publisher came to me, an editor, and said, we want you to write about Andrew Carnegie. Uh, Or she may have said Carnegie. I later discovered it was Carnegie. And I said, well, that's an interesting idea. Why? And she said, well, because we've already published a book. This was was Random House. We published a biography of J.P. Morgan and another one of Rockefeller. And I've always thought that Carnegie was much more interesting than those two. And we know how to sell these books. So I took a trip to the Library of Congress. And I looked at Carnegie's letters that were kept there and his business memoranda and all sorts of other stuff. And then I read the biographies that had until then been written about Carnegie, and I discovered, wow, I want to write about this guy because I want to write about the Industrial Revolution, and I want to write about the moment in which, in U.S. history, the rich became fabulously rich and working people got a little bit richer, but the gap between what they earned and what the industrialists or the robber barons or the manufacturers earned just ballooned out of all proportion. So that was the, that was the subject. When I began the Kennedy book, it was, a, it was different. It was different because the, the Kennedys came to me um, and they asked me to write about their father, Gene Kennedy and Ted Kennedy and Eunice Kennedy were then alive. And they, and I told them at the time that I was working on another book, I said, I can't do it. You know, I was working on Carnegie. And they said, well, when will you be finished? Uh, that was the first I learned of the Kennedy's penchant for not taking no as an answer. Um, I agreed to do the book only when they met my conditions, and those conditions were that they would give me access to all the papers, the boxes and boxes of stuff that had been hidden away at the JFK library and that they had not allowed any researcher, any biographer, any historian to to see. And I wanted complete access to that. I wanted to be able to interview family members And I wanted them to understand that if I began this book, they would see it when it was between hardcovers and not before that. And I wasn't going to ask them for for permission to use anything. Whatever I found, I would use. And Senator Kennedy, we met for the first time at the Senate office building um, in a conference room. The senator, me, and his two Portuguese water dogs who were allowed to come to the Senate on Mondays because the Senate wasn't in session and they could stay with Ted. And uh, we all had lunch together. Uh, The senator who was on a perpetual diet had one very, very, very thin slice of bread with one very, very, like a sliver of tuna fish. Um, And we talked. And we talked for hours. And the senator was hysterical. He, in the course of this talk, mimicked. He, he could have gone on stage as a, as a mimic, as a comedian. He mimicked everyone in his family and every Boston politician who's ever lived. Um, 
And I said, you don't want me to do this book. You don't want me to do this book because I'm a historian and I do research and I take my craft seriously. And I'm going to find stuff that the family is not going to be happy with. He said, no, we know. What are, you, what are you going to say? That he had an affair with Gloria Swanson? Everybody knows that. And he said, and I'm not worried. I knew my father and I know he wasn't an anti-Semite. He said, and, you know, just go for it. He said, let me know exactly what you need. Write it down on a piece of paper. Send it to my sister Jean in New York because she runs the family businesses run out of New York. It's where the, the uh, offices are for the, I don't know what it's called, the office that looks after the Kennedy fortune and disperses money when they need it. Um, so I said, fine. It took a year and a half from that date until I got the permissions I wanted, <coughs> until I got a letter signed. And, and in true Kennedy fashion, it wasn't an agreement where I sign over here and he signs over there. It was a letter from him on behalf of the family saying, this is what we're going to do. Fortunately, it gave me everything that I wanted. And I was off and running. The problem was that because this book had come to me in a different way, I didn't know what it was I was writing about other than the man. I knew that it was an extraordinary subject for a historian because Joseph P. Kennedy not only lived through but was a participant in every major event of the 20th century. From World War I to the boom, the prosperity of the 20s, the stock market runaway, the transition in Hollywood from silent films to talkies, and the transition of the entertainment business to the number one export business in this country, the crash, the depression, the election of Roosevelt, the New Deal, And I was only half finished. <laughs> then there was World War II, the run-up to World War II, World War II itself, because Kennedy was the ambassador to Great Britain from 1938 to 1940. The Cold War, the New Frontier, the election of JFK. It was a gold mine for a historian. But I, but I didn't want to tell that history using Kennedy as like a, a Zelig-type figure who was there. He participated... But how? What was my theme? What was my issue? What was my narrative through line that was going to tie it all together? I didn't know. I didn't panic. I kept working at it. I remembered that my friend Gene Strauss, who wrote a wonderful biography of J.P. Morgan, told me after 10 years of working on the book that she had just figured out what it was about. I, I didn't have 10 years, but I figured it'll come. And then it did. And, and it had been right in front of me all the time. It's the story of an outsider who struggles to become an insider. It's the story of a moment in our history as a people in a society where we identified one another and ourselves not simply by skin color or by race, but by religion 
and ethnicity. In 1920, in 1930, in 1940, in 1950, and even 1960, you were a Russian Jew, an Italian Catholic, an Irish Catholic, People accepted it and people looked upon one another as different tribes, who friendly tribes most of the time. When Joseph P. Kennedy graduated from Harvard in 1912, he had grown up in a solidly middle class family, probably the, most, the first family of East Boston. His father was not a saloon keeper, as you know, some have said. He was a banker. He was a politician. He was a ward leader. He had a real estate company and a coal company. He was probably the, one of the wealthiest men and one of the most respected men in East Boston, as was Joseph P. Kennedy's father. This was not a rags-to-riches story. Kennedy went to what was perhaps the best secondary school in the country, Boston Latin, And then he went to Harvard. At Harvard, he was, you know, he didn't make any of the WASP clubs, but he didn't much care. He was much more upset with the fact that he didn't make the starting baseball team. Either because, I don't know, either because there are two different stories. He couldn't hit, hit a curveball or he was too slow. I think it was because he was too slow. Uh, that upset him. When he graduated from Harvard, having been at the center of things in East Boston, because in East Boston everybody was an Irish Catholic, everybody knew Kennedy, everybody knew the family. When he graduated from East Boston, he decided he was not going to go into the family business, which was politics. His girlfriend, who he soon married, was the daughter of the mayor. His father was one of the most important politicians in, in Boston. He wasn't going to go into the family business. He was going to become a banker. Okay. And guess what? With his Harvard degree, his charisma, his intelligence, his flair for numbers, he couldn't get an interview. He couldn't get in the front door or the bank door of any back door of any bank or financial institution in Boston. His friends, who happened to be white, Anglo, Saxon, and Protestant, got appointments like this at the First National Bank, at the Shawmut Bank. To get into banking and finance, Joseph P. Kennedy had to take a civil service exam. And when he passed the civil service exam, he became an assistant bank examiner. And his job was to travel around the state and to look at, the, at bank books, look at their outstanding loans. And he figured, well, this is the way in. Because I will be meeting with treasurers and officers of these banks. They'll see how smart I am. They'll give me a job. Once again, It did not happen. 
He knew, although all his life, he considered himself an American, not an Irish American, that everybody else looked at him as an Irish American. I'll just give you a couple of more steps in this progression of the outsider who wants to become the insider, who gets thrown back on the outside again. He went to Hollywood. Why did he go to Hollywood? Because he wanted to get into finance. He wanted to make deals. He had a brief job as an assistant stockbroker at Hayden Stone, which was a minor firm in Boston and everywhere else in the country. The big money to be made in as a stockbroker was not selling stocks to your friends, but was making deals. And none of the companies that Hayden Stone dealt with, the sugar refineries, the railroads, the shipping companies, none of them wanted an Irish Catholic doing their deals. They didn't know, what, was, what is this Kennedy? They wanted a Peabody. They wanted an Appleton. They wanted an old established family. The only place he could go to make deals and to make money for himself and his family and to make a name for himself was into a business that the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, that the Yankees wanted nothing to do with. And that was entertainment. That was the flickers. That was the moving pictures. Um, the big banks in Boston stayed away. Why? Because this was for the immigrants. This was for the masses. There was no money to be made there. Joe Kennedy thought differently. He ended up in Hollywood. And in Hollywood, once again, understanding now, as well as anybody else in this land, the way ethnic politics worked, he repositioned himself. He had been the outsider in Boston banking because he was an Irish Catholic. He was an outsider in Hollywood, but for a different reason because he wasn't a Jew. So he turned everything upside down and he went to the Hollywood studios and the Hollywood press and the trade associations and he said, you need me. I'm an all-American. I'm a Christian. I'm from Harvard. I'm a banker. I'm not a furrier. I'm not some Eastern European yokel. He said, and your business is in trouble because it's identified with the Jews. And he was right. When he got to Hollywood in every city and every state, there were laws that were in legislatures being contemplated to censor the industry because the middle class was starting to send, its kids were starting to go to the movies and nobody wanted them to be entertained by a Jewish-run industry. Joe Kennedy ended up his rhetoric was sharp enough. The case he made was sharp enough, and he was sharp enough. He ended up at one point running four of the six largest studios in Hollywood at the same time. He left Hollywood and making millions upon millions upon millions of dollars as the outsider insider who played the role, who played the game of ethnic politics as well as anybody ever had. 1932, he felt obligated for the first time to go into the family business that he had scorned, politics. Why? Because he had in Hollywood made millions and millions and millions of dollars. 
He had set up trust funds of a million dollars each for his children. And he was scared that unless somebody like Franklin Roosevelt became president, American capitalism was going down, American democracy was going down, the United States was going to follow in the path that Italy had already gone, that the Soviet Union had gone, that Germany had gone, towards dictatorship, towards fascism or communism, unless there was a powerful man to right the ship of state. And how did he present himself? to Roosevelt as the Irish-American who was going to bring in the Irish vote. And Roosevelt was worried about that because Al Smith, the most important Irish politician in the country, was against him. So again, Kennedy, the outsider, sort of works himself into the inside but understands that if he becomes too much of an insider... He's going to lose whatever cachet he has, number one. And number two, he's proud of who he is. He's proud to be an Irish Catholic. Right. 1934, he's rewarded for his service in the campaign by being named the first chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Roosevelt brilliant, 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 brilliant politician decides that he's going to ask Kennedy, the stock manipulator par excellence, to regulate the stock market. Roosevelt's cabinet goes ballistic. His liberal friends and supporters can't believe it. They say, this is probably the dumbest idea you've ever had. Roosevelt says, trust me. Why? Because though Kennedy had made gazillions of dollars on Wall Street, he had done so as an outsider. He didn't belong to the club. He didn't belong to the club. His allegiances were to protect capitalism from itself. And he knew what had to be done. After 18 months at the Securities and Exchange Commission, he had put into place regulations, restrictions that made it impossible for him to make money in the stock market anymore. He had outlawed every trick of the trade. He had outlawed insider trading. He had outlawed the kind of short selling that he did. Um, He left the Securities and Exchange Commission in 1935 and pulled his money out of the stock market and put it in real estate and oil where he continued to make money for the rest of his life. Okay, this is the story. This was the theme that I found. <coughs> and, and it was a remarkable theme. And, and Kennedy always, Kennedy did not like the fact that he had to play these ethnic politics. He, he wanted his children desperately to be accepted as, you know, Brahmins. He didn't want them to give up being Catholic or to deny that they were Irish, but he wanted that hyphen to disappear. And in 1960, when his son Jack ran for the presidency, he thought, hey, the time has come. Jack Kennedy is by far the best candidate out there. 
the electorate wants to change. They've had too much Eisenhower-Nixon. Nixon is a dreadful candidate. Um, nobody much likes him. The feeling was, and Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, campaigned with more money because of his father and with more vitality and more energy than Nixon ever did. Kennedy believed that the old divisions that he had faced were gone. Jack Kennedy was elected to the presidency. And at the first press conference he held as president-elect at the Hyannisport Armory with his family, all his brothers and sisters at his side, the reporters noticed that nobody looked particularly happy especially Joseph Patrick Kennedy, the father of the president-elect. Why? Why? Because he had expected his son, as had everyone else, that his son would win in a landslide. The Democratic vote in every... If you total the Democratic vote in the congressional districts across the country, the Democratic vote was 54.5%. The vote for John Fitzgerald Kennedy was less than 50%. There was a 5% difference. And Joseph P. Kennedy knew right away, it took the political scientists and the pundits a little while to figure it out, definitively, that a huge percentage of white, Protestant Democrats who had voted Democrat all their life and voted for every Democrat on the ticket would not vote for John Fitzgerald Kennedy because he was an Irish Catholic. It was a bittersweet victory, but a victory nonetheless. A year later, before Joseph B. Kennedy was able to understand that the man who was going to do more to eliminate this prejudice against Catholics than anyone else, his son, by the time his son had been in office for a year, some people loved him, some people hated him, but nobody believed that his being a Catholic had anything to do with, with his policies. Um, 50 years later, 52 years later, four men would run for national office in this country, 2012. How many of them were Protestants? It's a quiz. One, sort of. His parents may not have been. Barack Obama. The nation had changed dramatically. Um, History is the story of change over time. And... I have attempted in this book to show this one change. We have a, God knows we have a lot of divisions in this nation. God knows we don't look at one another as, you know, equal in our patriotism and in our Americanness. God knows we're still fighting to keep out immigrants who have, who look as American as the rest of us do and have been here all their lives. Um, But it's important for those of us who teach history and 
and pay attention to history, to also look at those positive changes. And I think the change that I've discussed is, is one of those um, and should not be overlooked, neglected, or ignored. I am delighted to take questions. Yes, we'll start over here. If you give people the word association test and say Joe Kennedy, I think a lot of people would say bootlegger, first word. And could you talk about that? Um, you know, I would have loved had Joseph P. Kennedy been a bootlegger. Nothing would have made me happier. There were so many wonderful people I could have written about. Um, but he was not a bootlegger. There is absolutely no evidence. I'm a historian. What does that mean? It means I read footnotes. It means I don't believe anything until I know where it came from, right? So I looked at every book, every article, every cartoon, every interview that called him a bootlegger, and I tried to figure out where it came from, uh, you know, and all I could do was laugh. One of the main sources was a man who claimed to be Al Capone's piano tuner, and he said he had been p tuning the piano when Capone and Kennedy made a deal. Another was the ex-wife, wife number three out of five, of Murray the Camel Humphreys, a second-level Chicago mafia figure. Uh, and the estranged wife said she had been there and heard Murray the Camel talk to Kennedy Associates. Um, I once, on a map, put all the places where Kennedy was seen offloading crates of liquor during Prohibition. And it's every port in this country, except Baltimore. I don't know why Baltimore was left out. I mean, Florida, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Great Lakes, Pacific, the Atlantic, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Long Island, Massachusetts. Uh, it's nuts. The only bit of evidence that seemed at all credible was that the Canadian, there's a Canadian firm called Joseph Kennedy Limited. Joseph Kennedy Limited of Vancouver was fined by the Canadian government for sending alcohol across the border without paying the excise tax. Canadians didn't care what the hell you did with your alcohol as long as you paid the tax before you shipped it into the United States. So I checked out this Joseph P. This Joseph Kennedy Limited, and I found out that it was a company owned by David Joseph Kennedy, a longtime resident of Vancouver, who had never been anywhere near Boston. Um, so no. And I mean, there's further evidence that, that I can get. You know, nobody even talked about this stuff until after Jack Kennedy was assassinated. When, in 1960, Nixon hired squadrons, armies of researchers to find dirt on Kennedy. And they figured they could find a lot more dirt on Daddy than on the boy. They found all sorts of dirt, but they never claimed he was a bootlegger. He was investigated by the FBI, Joseph Kennedy, dozens of times because he hold, held all sorts of government positions. Nobody ever claimed that he was a bootlegger. They claimed, you know, all sorts of other things. He was a stock swindler, he was a manipulator, he was a thief, he was a Nazi, he was an anti-Semite. 
but nobody ever said bootlegger. Only after the assassination, a nation totally dissatisfied with the Warren report, whether you believe that Oswald, Oswald was the only shooter or not, the Warren report you know, is, is not a credible document. So all sorts of investigators, reporters, journalists, historians tried to establish a tie to the mob to explain this assassination. And that's where these bootlegger stories came from. A long answer to a short question. Do you always attempt to uh, locate a family member, a descendant of, of the person that you're writing about? Yes. Uh, yes. I always try. I don't much trust what they have to tell me. Um, because, I mean, we all make stuff up. I mean, you know, and, and every... You show me the parent that has told the absolute truth about his or her life and achievements to children and grandchildren, you know, and I'll, you know, eat this plastic. It just doesn't happen. We all, we're all myth makers. And the rich and famous probably more than the rest of us. Nonetheless, I try to find as many people as I can, um, listen to their stories, find out as much as I can from them, and then test it against other evidence. And I also try to get photographs, letters that were stored away in garages or attics. Um, it's something that I have to do, though I don't much enjoy it. And don't forget your band. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I had already forgotten it. Um, are there any other questions over here? Thank you very much. Good evening. Very good presentation. Can you talk a little bit about Mrs. Kennedy and her influence on her husband, on the family, and on the nation as a whole? How much of an effect does she have in trying to produce positive vibes, if you will? Yeah. Um, thank God I didn't have to write about Rose. I have friend, a friend who tried to write about Rose and after 10 years gave up because she couldn't figure her out. And there's a new book about Rose, which I don't know that it figures her out either. Rose was an extraordinarily complicated woman who I think was overwhelmed by having nine children and a philandering husband and never, in order to keep her own sanity, retreated into the church, into fashion, into travel, and into a sort of lunatic detail-oriented child-rearing practice. In order to keep track of her kids, she would have index cards in which she would write when everybody was sick and how they were sick. She would, on her house dress, to remind herself of things that had to be done, she'd, she'd pin notes. So she looked like a you know, walking bulletin board. Um, the kids loved her. The, the, you know, the, the kids loved her, but I don't know the parent who looked after them when they were sick, who talked to their teachers when they were in trouble, who changed schools for them, who got them their first jobs, who watched over them when they needed to recover from one or another illnesses was Joseph P. Kennedy. He spent more time with his kids 
um, certainly after the, the Hollywood years, um, not as much when they were infants, you know, but he was the parent in charge. Explain the, the uh, impact that Joseph P. had on Jack, Jack Kennedy's uh, 1960 election. And I'm sure you, you know this. The, um, the oldest son was really being groomed to be president. Of course, he was killed in the war. And Jack was kind of an unimpressive politician when he first ran for Congress. Yeah, and Jack he, was, yeah, uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, and I write a lot about it. I, the, the question was, Joe, the father's influence on the son's uh, political career. Nobody thought Jack Kennedy was going to amount to very much because he was a sickly child all his life. Every childhood disease, every adolescent disease, this kid caught. Um, he spent half his life in bed. One of the reasons he became so smart was he spent half his life reading, reading history in bed, recovering from one illness or another. I don't think he ever got through an entire school year when he was in elementary school or in prep school. He'd lose months at a time. Uh, it took him you know, many years. Nobody thought he would get through Harvard because he was so sick. Uh, Joseph P. Kennedy would have been very happy to see his son reach the age of 30. He really thought that that was not going to happen. Jack Kennedy also, as this, as a younger brother whose older brother, as you mentioned, Joseph Kennedy Jr., was hale, hardy, handsome, athletic, charming, um, not nearly as smart as Jack, but nobody noticed because he worked hard in school. He got great grades at Harvard and at Harvard Law. Everybody thought that Joe was going to, you know, enter the family business, which was politics. Uh, and Joe was the one who was going to do well. Joe was killed during the war. Jack decided on his own. Joseph P. Kennedy knew that he couldn't force his kids to do anything because he had raised them to be as stubborn and as individualistic as he was. But Jack decided, in part because he knew his father wanted it, to go into politics. In 1946, he was the most unlikely candidate possible. If he hadn't had his father's money and his grandfather's influence and connections behind him, he never would have gotten anywhere. He was skinny. He was shy. He didn't like to shake hands. He had never been particularly strong. And yet, this guy, and it's a remarkable story, he taught himself to be a campaigner. He took voice lessons. He taught himself to appear in front of a stage and in front of a camera, newsreel camera. He out-campaigned every one of his opponents. He would get up at 5 in the morning and come home at 10 o'clock at night and get into the bathtub to soak his, his back. And he worked day after day after day after day, and he listened to his father, who created a theme for his campaign. His father said, Jack, you got to run as a veteran. you got to run as a veteran. And never mention my name. Um, in 46, 48, 50, 52, uh, the father played a large role in the campaigns. By 1960, 
Joseph P. Kennedy was smart enough to know that he had two sons and a couple of son-in-laws who knew politics better than he did. Bobby and Jack were brilliant politicians. Brilliant. They played good guy and bad guy in a way that you know we haven't seen in a long time. They created their own machine and Joe gave him the money to do so. Just tell you one other story. Um, at one point, when the decision was made that Jack was going to run for the presidency, there was a meeting at Hyannisport of the family members. And Kennedy said, you know, tell me what you need me to do. He said, and I will give you as much money as it takes. Whatever it takes to get this job done, you've got it. And Bobby looked at it and said, well, don't spend too much. What about the rest of us? Uh, there was enough money for that campaign and, and many more. We're going to go in the back and then the front here. Uh, I have two questions. Um, the first one is, um, do you, what, what were the major, um, if you could say, the major um, Hollywood uh, affairs of Joseph Kennedy besides Gloria Swanson? Because I know he had a lot. And number two, uh, what... Why didn't he agree to, um, when he was ambassador, to really, he was against the war. He was against, he, wasn't he against yes. America entering the war? So yes. There were, there were several, you know, there weren't that many women in Hollywood because he had to struggle hard to find time for Gloria Swanson. Um, and there wasn't a lot of time because Gloria was, you know, an extraordinary, powerful woman. And it was bad enough that Gloria had a husband and that Joe had a wife. It would have complicated things infinitely more if Joe had had other lovers and mistresses. Um, he just had the two, one mistress and one wife for most of the Hollywood years. Um, what The second question was what, please? Oh, he was, yeah, he was totally against the war. And, you know, you've got to under, you've, to be a historian, to think historically, you've got to look back at the moment in time, between 1938 and 1940, until the Soviet Union, until Hitler made probably one of the stupidest decisions that any world leader. I mean, everybody talk about, talks about Hitler, or too many historians as this military genius. He was an idiot. When he decided to turn east and to go after the Soviet Union, right? In winter, when Napoleon hadn't been able to do it, when the Germans hadn't done it in World War I, he knew, right, um, the war, was, the war was over at that point. But up until that moment, no military analyst, no politician, no statesman, no historian, no journalist in his right mind would have said that the Brits can defeat the Germans. Right? Hitler and the Nazis controlled the entire continent. And Joseph P. Kennedy said time and time and time again, if we enter into this war, every plane, every tank, every gun 
we give the British is going to end up in the hands of the Germans. Number one. Number two, the best we can hope for is a war that will go on forever and that Hitler will finally, you know, give up after bleeding Great Britain for five or ten years. Joseph P. Kennedy was terrified that the Depression would come back and that capitalism and the millions of dollars he had made would be lost, that democracy would be lost, and that a generation of young men, including his sons, would be lost. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. There's one over here. After uh, Kennedy had his daughter unsuccessfully uh, lobotomized, was there any change in family dynamics? Boy, what a, what a great question. I, that was one of the things I tried to find out. I asked every family. Nobody would talk about it. They would, they would make up these stories. Um, I was lucky because I found all sorts of documents in the papers. What happened was that Joseph P. Kennedy convinced the rest of his family, and he may have been right, but, but it was inhumane. It was horrible. He convinced the rest of his family that they shouldn't go see Rosemary after her lobotomy because it would make her un, unhappy that she would be better off in her convent school in Wisconsin with no contact with the family, starting all over again in this new life. Rosemary, after the lobotomy, before the lobotomy, she had the intelligence of a six, seven, eight-year-old. After the lobotomy, she could not speak, could not communicate, I don't think could dress herself. She could eat. Um, she could walk. She had, she had retained or, or learned to walk again. Um, but nothing else. For the rest of his life, Joseph P. Kennedy never saw his daughter. He died without having seen her for 15 years. Where, after he had a debilitating stroke and couldn't keep track of what was going on, Eunice and Rose began to visit Rosemary. And Rosemary began to be reintegrated into the family. But nobody dared tell Joseph P. Kennedy. Part of that had to have been a sense of, of guilt. Not because he made the decision to have the lobotomy. If we want to blame somebody, we shouldn't blame Joseph P. Kennedy. We should blame the medical establishment, which endorsed this barbaric form of surgery. Um... He made the decision by himself. And why did he make the decision by himself? Because all the medical textbooks, all the advice books, all the experts said mothers shouldn't be consulted because mothers are too sentimental. They're too emotional. You can't trust them. The father has to make the decision by himself. And Joseph B. Kennedy made the decision by himself. There was a one in ten chance that the lobotomy would go wrong. And this one went wrong. And I think, though, he never said it to anyone, and maybe never said it to himself, there was a sense of enduring shame that his favorite daughter, his oldest daughter, who he loved with all his heart and soul, had been rendered this you know, infant again.
there were many tragedies in the in the Kennedy family, and and I I talk about them all in my book. This was a family that lived large, its triumphs and its tragedies, and I thank you all. <laughs>